Hello there. It's good to be with you today. And wherever you are, I want to encourage you to get your Bibles out and turn over to Daniel 2. We're in the second of this series, Standing Strong in the End Times. And I'm going to lead you through Daniel 2 today. And um, as you get there, I want to tell you a little story um, that came to me this week. Four years ago, I was riding across the Nullarbor at this very moment with uh, a bunch of uh, other people. And that was a tremendous experience. And I went over there for uh, to Bunbury uh, ahead of time with, uh, with three other guys, Andrew and Lee and Ken. And in the midst of that, there was a bit of a mystery. You see, the mystery was that we had a, a whole bunch of food donated for the ride. And in the midst of that donation, Melissa Kemp uh, gave me a fruitcake to take on the ride. And I thought this looked a very good fruitcake. So instead of putting it with all the rest of the food, I put it in the minibus, which I knew we would be taking over there. And I thought that will be excellent to have on the way over. Anyway, the packing continued on. Uh, we started driving. Uh, I think it was day two, halfway through the day, I remembered this fruitcake. We were out in the middle of the Nullarbor at the time. And I remembered this fruitcake was there and I thought, oh, now that I know it's there, we, we really must try and find it. But I had a little bit of a look around through the back of the bus and I couldn't find it. And I thought, I wonder where it is. And uh, then I mentioned it to the other guys and um, Lee got busy. And he, <laughs> we have this memory of Lee with his, uh, with his head down in the seats. His bum was up in the air and he was fishing around through all the stuff for what seemed like a long time to find this fruitcake. And then finally... He found it down the bottom of some box somewhere. And um, the mystery was revealed, and we were all very happy. We had this, had this moment of cutting up fruitcake with a Stanley knife and eating it together as we're driving across the Nullarbor. And it was really cool, and we, we got together this last week to do it all again. Thank you, Melissa, for that cake that you happened to deliver at just the right time uh, last week. But there's a mystery there, and it was, it was a relief to us when it was revealed. And, and I guess that's where we are in Daniel 2. Daniel 2, it really focuses in on, on the God, the God of heaven, who reveals mysteries. And we, as humanity, we need that revelation. The idea of reveal or show or make known, in the original language, it comes in 20 of the verses here in the, in the um, uh, 49 verses there are. 20 of those verses feature the idea of revealing or making known. And, and verses 22 and 28 are perhaps at the center of the chapter and, and make it very clear for us. 28, for instance, there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries and he's made known to the king what will be in the latter days. And what we find is that as revelation comes, as God reveals everything in this episode of ancient Babylon that was muddy and unclear and uncertain and unknown is is revealed and you know i think we need to understand that god doesn't always reveal what we want but he reveals what we need and we see that clearly here and god means today for this revelation of who he is how he operates to grab our attention he means for it to fill our vision for it to comfort our hearts for it to control our direction and he means for it to replace our fear and our helplessness 
So that's, that's, the, that's the summary of Daniel 2. That's where we're going today. Let's dig into it a little bit more and, uh, and see how that gets worked out. And firstly, I want us to see that we have a God who reveals in verses 1 to 30. The chapter starts with a dream. And, um, and we find that brings fear. It brings fear for the king. Initially, we see in verse 1, his spirit was troubled. And exactly the same language down in verse 3 as well. Oh, I guess he's, he's woken up at night after this dream. He, he can't get back to sleep. And, and now he's got up and he, <laughs> maybe he's pacing about in his pajamas. And, uh, and King Nebuchadnezzar's in quite a state. Fear is starting to take a hold of him. And we learn later as we go through the chapter, that he had this dream of an enormous statue that uh, stands before him grand and magnificent, but then it gets broken to pieces. And he's no idiot, Nebuchadnezzar. He thinks it means trouble, but, but what is the trouble? Where is the trouble going to come? How is it going to come? When's it going to come? A future he doesn't understand has got a grip on his heart. So what does a king do? Well, we find that he calls all the advisors. And he transfers the fear to them. <laughs> he didn't, and uh, once he'd done that, they didn't need a coffee to wake them up in the morning. We don't know if this was early morning, but verse 5, it's this startling, startling verse. Uh, the king says to the Chaldeans, these are the advisors, his magicians, enchanters, whatever. The word from me is firm. If you do not make known to me the dream and its interpretation, you shall be torn limb from limb and your houses shall be laid in ruins pretty confronting way to start the day isn't it <laughs> you know they would have started thinking quickly and uh, and so we find that there's fear for king nebuchadnezzar but there's fear now for his advisors as well but we find also that there's helplessness as well from nebuchadnezzar he doesn't know what the dream means and so he's helpless in the face of that but for the king's advisors well he won't tell them what the dream is and so they find they are helpless too. Verse 7 just amuses me, really. A uh, first time they said, well, tell us about it. And then he says, no, you need to show me the dream and its interpretation. And then they say a second time, hang on a minute, have, have we heard wrong? Uh, let the king tell his servants the dream and we will show its interpretation. And, um, and King Nebuchadnezzar says, no way. You tell me the dream and its interpretation. And they're blinking their eyes and thinking, oh, my goodness, what is going on? And, uh, and we see verses 10 and 11. They're, they're exasperated. They say to him, there's not a man on earth who can meet the king's demand. No great and powerful king has asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or Chaldean. Verse 11, the thing that the king asks is difficult. And no one can show it to the king except the gods whose dwelling is not with flesh. We'll come back to how important that is and what, what truth and reality that is. But what we see here is that the power of the day, the king, and the wisdom of the day, his advisors, for both of them, fear and helplessness dominate. You know, as we think about that and think about our situation now, the Bible's not too out of date, is it? It's, um, it's, it speaks to us very clearly where we are now and then we find as we as we come down through the passage that daniel gets introduced into the story uh the king's really cranky verse 12 he wants them all uh, beheaded destroyed 
And, um, and Daniel's introduced into the story in verse 14. And I, and I simply want to highlight that as we look at Daniel here, you, I want to encourage you to dig around in this for yourself. Maybe it's in uh, a discussion later on. Maybe it's in a life group. Um, but uh, I want to show us that uh, we've got a bit of a model here in Daniel for how God's people can stand strong, since we're using that language of standing strong, how God's people can stand strong in a world of fear and helplessness. And I'm just going to briefly uh, skate over it and leave you to flesh it out a bit more later. But, but verse 14, we see that Daniel replies with prudence and discretion to Ariok. And so I think we can stand strong by speaking wisely. Into the situations in which we find ourselves, Daniel speaks wisely and, and we can follow that lead. We can, we can speak wisely with prudence, not shooting our mouth off. Uh, verse 15 and 16, we, we see that he, uh, he says, why is the king's decree so urgent? He, he seeks to understand. Um, what is going on? Verse 16, he went in and, and he requests the king. To appoint him a time that he might show the interpretation. He seeks to understand. He seeks to have a hearing. Verse 17, uh, we find that he joins in with God's people. He gets got other people around him, his friends around him, Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah, his companions. And verse 18, he asks for God's mercy. So how do we stand strong in times of fear and helplessness? We speak wisely. We seek to understand. We join in with God's people. We ask for God's mercy. That's something of what it means to stand strong, as Daniel uh, gives us an example here. And I want to say, no matter what happens in verse 19, we have something to hold on to there. Uh, a guide to help us in being God's people in times of fear and helplessness. But verse 19 is there. And the upheaval of verses 1 to 16 is resolved with the revelation of God. Verse 19, then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision of the night. Now, it doesn't tell us all that mystery now. That's coming later on in verses 31 and following, what the dream was and its interpretation. But it just tells us that it's revealed. And then we have this praise from, from Daniel. Um, and we find in verses 20 to 23 that Daniel is praising God. He's making it very apparent that, that he... He is not where the wisdom has come from, but the wisdom has come from, from God. And we can't hear, we can't miss that. It is God's wisdom, it is God's revealing that has brought light to this situation, to this mystery. And so he goes and tells the king in verse 24 and following what, um, what God has revealed to him. And we find as we flow through the narrative, it will come back to the dream, but as we flow through the narrative, verses 46 to 49, we find that there is relief there for the king once, when he hears what's happening. It's not all good news for him, but just knowing brings relief for him. That grip of fear that's on his heart, is is um, is released and no doubt it brought relief for the advisors as well the chopping block is uh, is away from them uh, for the moment and um, and the king then praises god for what he has made known now i want to pause on that for a bit because as i said this idea of god revealing as at the heart of this chapter and there's three double verses here that are worth us noting and I think are helpful for us. Verses 10 to 11 and verses 27 to 28 and verses 18 to 19. You see, 10 and 11 is the pagan theology 
their reflection on their situation. The helplessness of man, verse 10, and the only God can reveal it, verse 11. That's, that's a bunch of, of pagans saying, oh, this is the reality that we see. And that gets reflected in verses 27 and 28. This comes from Daniel, God's, God's person, and pretty well the same thing. Verse 27, no wise men, enchanters, magicians, or astrologers can show to the king the mystery that the king has asked. The helplessness of man. And then that is resolved by the God of heaven who reveals mysteries. So those two little doubles there, 10 and 11 and 27 and 28, they give us the, the reality of the situation. And then in the middle is verses 18 and 19. And, and in effect, that is the resolution. The resolution for man, verse 18, is to go and seek mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery. Seek mercy to understand, to have it revealed to us. And verse 19, wonderfully, that is the reflection of, of verse 11 and verse 28. God reveals the mystery. And what I want us to see here as we, as we just pause on that is that um, it's, it's a comment that um, Donna and I were throwing around this week as we were chatting that uh, she had heard somewhere. And it says, Babylon is not a place. It's a mindset. Babylon is not a place, it's a mindset. Does that make sense? You see, Babylon is not about geography. It's about a way of thinking about ourselves and the world in which we live. And here's the Babylon mindset for you. It's, it's this, we live in a self-existing universe consisting of energy, of time, of chance. And as creatures of that universe, we don't know which way the dice will fall. And we are just at the mercy of the dice. There is no God, there is no design, there is no purpose, and there is no identity. That, that's the Babylon mindset. That's the mindset of, of the world in which we live. But Bible Christians have a different view. As uh, Dale Ralph Davis says, um, a commentator I was reading this week. Bible Christians hold that there is a God who knows and orders the course of history down through the rise and rubble of nations until the days when he sets up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed. And that's what verse 44 brings to us. Why do we have that worldview? We have that worldview because the God of the Bible reveals it to us in places such as this. And as we go on through the Old Testament and on to the New Testament, over and over again, the emphasis of that worldview comes from the revelation of God. We don't have it by looking around to other humanity. We don't have it by seeking the wisdom of each other. We have it in revelation from God. And how does it affect us? Well, I, I think we're, as we confront that, that idea, it, God means for it to give us hope. He means for it to give us a reason to put one foot in front of the other and go through each day of the life that we are given to live in the place and the situation we are given to live it. God means for it to affect the way we go about life here and now. You see, Bible Christians are not unrealistic though. God doesn't make everything we want to know plain to us. God doesn't show us exactly how long we will live, for instance. He, he, he doesn't tell us if you're, a, if you're a, a year 12 student at the moment or a university student. He, he doesn't tell us what our university or our, or, or our ATAR or our university mark will be. 
<laughs> he doesn't even tell us when we'll be able to move freely around our country at the moment. But verse 22 helps us as we think about that. And here's what it says. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness and the light dwells with him. Do you see that? Do you see that movement there from revealing to knowing God reveals deep and hidden things? But the things that we don't know doesn't mean he doesn't know. When he doesn't reveal it, it doesn't mean that he doesn't know it and i want to say you can get out of bed each day with a god like that with a god who you can trust to 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 know all that is happening in your life in the in the world around you in the in the political spheres of the world you may not know them all god may not have revealed them to you all but you can get out of bed with a god that you know knows it You can step into the darkness and uncertainty of the future without being paralyzed by anxiety and fear with a God like that, with a God of verse 22. Because we can trust the one who knows. Now, I don't know about you, but that that affects me. I remember very clearly the day the teenage me was, was driving along this rough dirt road that was our road from from school at Carcolderby to home and I was listening to a cassette yes one of those things that uh, uh, we used to listen to and um, as I was driving along I was hearing these lyrics in this song I know not what the future holds but I know the one who holds the future so I will not fear and I know I had this huge smile and I remember tears of relief and comfort and i remember singing along with that as i rewound it over and over and over again it affected me in fact it still affects me now i know not what the future holds but i because i know the one who holds the future i will not fear and i want to say to you today and and hear me clearly please whether our fears are a, a covert overloaded health system whether our fears are being separated from loved ones, whether our fears are losing our freedoms, whether our fears are what a vaccine may do to us or, or not, or whether our fears are whatever uncertainty and darkness lies in between for, for you today, fear and fear-mongering is all around us in our world at the moment. And as I look around, as I talk to people, it's apparent that for many of God's people, it is affecting us. That fear and fear-mongering, it, it, it tends to, to easily dominate and cloud our vision. And into that today, Daniel 2 speaks and says, look out of that. Look beyond your fears. Look beyond your helplessness to a God who reveals He may not reveal everything to you, but you can trust him with what he doesn't reveal and look to him for what he will reveal. Verse 22, let that dominate your mind and and let that lead you to verse 18. Verse 18, Daniel goes and seeks the mercy of God. and, and, And I believe that's what God wants to say to us today. Have what I can reveal, the, the knowledge I have and that you can trust me with, have that dominating your vision and, and let that move you to seek mercy for how you trust me today. 
God reveals. That's what we see there in the start of this chapter. Secondly, what does God reveal? And, and we find that, that verses 31 to 35 is the dream. And, um, and here in the dream, you see this statue that's been set up. It, it's magnificent. It's, uh, it's enormous. Uh, its appearance was frightening. And um, there, there is a head that's of, uh, of gold, chest and arms of silver, uh, middle and thighs, bronze, legs of iron, and feet of iron and clay. And then in this dream, verse 34, a stone that uh, we'll come to later, a supernatural stone, not cut out by human hands. It, it strikes this statue on its feet of iron and clay, and, and the statue gets broken in pieces. And uh, it all goes to the wind, basically. And, and the stone that strikes the image becomes a great mountain and it fills the whole earth. That essentially is the dream that Nebuchadnezzar had. And then verses 36 to 45 is the interpretation of it. Now, chapter 7 builds on Daniel chapter 2. And um, chapter 7 will flesh out more of what this interpretation is. But, but very briefly, oh, I want to help you here as you look at this interpretation. I know many of you will be very interested in, in what we have here in Daniel and what that means for us now. And uh, what we see uh, that, that's very apparent that Daniel explains here is that the first kingdom, this head of gold, is, um, is the kingdom of Babylon. That's Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom. That's in, in the present uh, where they are then. And, and then uh, the second kingdom that comes after, most scholars would understand, is the Medo-Persian Empire. Some scholars will, will separate the Medes and the Persians, but it, it seems to make most sense to keep the Medes and the Persians together. You can go and read it for yourself, but over and over again in the Bible and in history, the Medes and the Persians are held together when, when history is looking back on that empire. That's the second empire. The third, we see this, um, this, this empire that comes after is, um, is the kingdom of bronze, verse 39. And, um, and that could be understood as the Greek empire. And then the fourth empire that comes, verse 40, the fourth kingdom, um, would then be understood as the Roman empire. Now, as I said, there's a bit of debate there in identifying those empires. Some scholars believe the fourth empire is the Greeks. So they split up the, the Medes and the Persians and they make the fourth empire the Greeks. Now, I've got to say, uh, the commentators say mostly they probably believe that because they don't want to believe that Daniel is predictive prophecy. And so they think that Daniel was written in about 200 BC and uh, he couldn't have possibly predicted what was going to happen with, uh, with the Greeks. And so he's writing it then as he's seeing it and he's looking back. But for, for scholars who believe that Daniel's predictive prophecy, well, it's easy to come um, to Rome being the fourth empire. Now, verse 42, uh, just as a little note for you, there is this, the, the toes of the feet, partly iron and clay. Um, some scholars take the toes as, as ten kingdoms or nations of unequal strength that will rise to form a coalition out of the ancient Roman Empire. And so many look and say, well, you know, maybe that's the EU. Uh, the, the problem here is that the text itself doesn't make any symbolic interpretation of the toes. 
It, it will, might be uh, something that is, is being worked out in our world now. But the, the text itself doesn't make any interpretation of those toes, whereas it does uh, elsewhere. And, and I think what we want to, we just want to just pause for a moment and be careful not to get ourselves lost in the little details of trying to plot out a timeline for the history of the world and see exactly where we are, where it's gone, and, and exactly where all the details are, where it's going. What we need to understand is that Bible prophecy, whether it's Daniel, whether it's Revelation, or whatever in between, it's there to reinforce for God's people that God rules now and evermore. And his people can trust him, whatever our present situation is. God gives us his word and he speaks to his kingdom going on forever and ruling so that we may trust him now with the present, even though we don't know what's going to happen into the future. But we see here. Uh, a few things as we look at this interpretation and uh, my time is, is disappearing rapidly and so I will go through them quite quickly. But I, I want us to see uh, three things. I want us to see that human power is delicate. Human power is delicate. Uh, have a look at verses 37 and 38. They both emphasize that this power is given by God. Uh, you, O king, the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom. And, and verse 38 says uh, essentially the same thing. It, it's not ours to own human power. It's, it's given by God. Verse 39, we see also uh, a picture of the delicateness of human power in, in this line. Now, the, the ESV, which I'm using here, it obscures it a bit. But the, the New King James um, uh, rightly has it like this. But after you. But after you. Can you understand what the reality of that would have meant for King Nebuchadnezzar? He's not going to be king forever. That's, he's going to come and go. There'll be other kings beyond him. You know, human kings seem to think at times they're going to go on forever, or human power likes to think it will go on forever. Yeah, power in whatever form it is likes to think it will just go on and on. And here's a reminder from God, there will be an after you. It won't go on forever. It's delicate. And then verses 40 to 43, um, just this note as it speaks about the, the fourth kingdom and, and the iron and, and then the clay. Uh, verse 41, um, feet and toes, partly of potter's clay and partly of iron. And it speaks of a divided kingdom. And then as you go down in verse 43, the iron is mixed with soft clay, and, um, but they will not hold together. Just as iron does not mix with clay. You know, there is strength and weakness combined there. But it's brittle and will not hold together. And, and, and all that is a picture of the delicate nature of human power. And so what do we do with that? Well, this is what I want to say is the so for that. Don't be impressed with political power. Don't be impressed with human power of whatever form. No matter how powerful it may seem, it's fleeting. And it's always on borrowed time. Secondly, I want us to see that human power doesn't get better and better. Uh, verse 39, that, that little word there, inferior. Where is it? I'm losing it here. Uh, here it is. Uh, a kingdom, another kingdom inferior to you shall arise after you. The Babylon mindset of our world has the idea that humanity gets better and stronger over time. And this little verse here reminds us that the opposite is true and I've probably got to reflect that history reminds us that's true too 
if we look around uh, in our world, and, and I've heard many people say recently, well, it's just getting worse and worse, isn't it? Humanity is finding more and more ways to, to make a mess of ourselves and the world in which we live. I think every generation says that. We need to understand that. But you don't have the idea that it's getting better and better. Technology may be improving, but uh, humanity's situation and uh, the situation of our world is, it would be hard to argue that it's, it's, um, it's not going downhill. The statue that starts out grand and beautiful here ends in weakness and messiness. And, and so what do we do with that? Don't go putting all your hopes and expectations in the next human leader or the next group or the next bit of technology or whatever making humanity better, the next, world, the next sort of thinking making humanity better. Human power doesn't get better and better. Thirdly, I think we see here, and this is the, the wonderful point that it's all heading towards, is that human power will end, but God's power is indestructible. <laughs> we've, uh, we've got verse 44, and, uh, and it says, and it starts with, and in the days of those kings. And so it, it's putting us in the Roman times. If we're interpreting the fourth kingdom as the Roman times, in those days. And then we go back to the... Um, uh, verse 34, which is linking with verse 44, and there is a stone that's cut out by no human hand. And as I mentioned, that gives us an indication that it's, that it's, it, it's come from supernaturally. It's come from God, from, from above somewhere, from outside of, of, of humanity. And we find that the stone strikes the statue in, um, in the dream and in the interpretation. And eventually it, it fills the whole earth that's what um, verse uh, 35 tells us the stone struck the image and became a great mountain and filled the whole earth and um, and Daniel then at the end of this chapter identifies this as God's kingdom and so this stone that, that strikes the statue, these, these kings and kingdoms that have come before, this stone that strikes them is actually God's kingdom, Daniel says. And you need to hear that, all you human kings. And um, you can see then why it causes such a stir when Jesus arrives in Roman times and he says the kingdom of God has arrived, it is here. They're thinking of the stone. They're thinking of the stone that destroys every other kingdom that's been spoken of here in Daniel. And they're saying, wow. But you can equally see why people wondered how this baby who, who ends up dying on a cross could be this all-powerful kingdom of God. And yet that is what Dan, God emphasizes for us here in Daniel and in the New Testament too. And we need to reckon with that, that God is impressing that on us today. And John Golding A., um, a commentator, he says this, he says, when God's time comes, his kingdom will come by catastrophe for earthly kingdoms, not by development of those kingdoms. So God's kingdom ruling will inevitably mean that all human powers and kingdoms will be put away and destroyed, will come to nothing. I was... Um, Reading this commentator, Dale Ralph Davis, and I thought, 
This is a really helpful way to reflect on that. And I couldn't put it in any better, better words, so I'll read it for you. He says this, and I want you to take this away today. This solid assurance of the victory of God's kingdom is meant to bring a contagious certainty to the people of God. People so often squashed under the arrogant heels of earth's kingdoms and rulers. Such an immovable dogma puts iron in their intestines and nerve in their spirits as they walk through the disappointments of life and the reverses of history. They never totally despair because they know that Jesus Christ is not only the faithful witness and the firstborn of the dead, but the ruler of kings on earth. Isn't that wonderful? God means for this today to put nerve in our intestines or iron in our intestines and to steal our nerves for whatever stands in front of us. Daniel chapter 2, we have a God who reveals and his revelation to us is that whatever human power we see in front of us now, whatever it was for Daniel, it was the power of Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon. But whatever powers in front of, are in front of us now and into the future, they will all one day fall, be destroyed by the power of the kingdom of God. And he started that process in, in the arrival of Jesus Christ. The kingdom of God is here. It, is, it will one day be completed catechismically, catastrophically for the kingdoms of this world. And he says to God's people now, to us, will you look to me? Will you trust me? In the midst of your fear and your helplessness, in the midst of your uncertainty and what you don't know, will you trust me now? I want to urge you to, um, to think about this uh, as you go away. How, how are you going to seek that revelation from God? We looked at the example of Daniel there, the model we have. And you might ask yourself too, how are you going to understand that God is revealing himself to you? Those are good questions to think about. But today, I want to encourage you. Allow your vision to be filled and dominated, not by the fear and the helplessness of the world around us, the uncertainty, but by a God who reveals deep and hidden things, who knows what is in the darkness and in whom light dwells. Let's pray and ask God to help us. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the magnificence of what we see here. And God, I, I pray today that this will not just be theology that makes us smile. It won't just be history that we say, yeah, Daniel, go. But God, I, I pray that this will be reality. It'll be truth. It'll be revelation that affects us, that shapes the way we think, that shapes the way we go about living in this world. God, you know the uncertainty we live in. You know the fear and helplessness we feel in our situations. And I just thank you. 
I thank you that we can sing. I know not what the future holds, but I know the God who holds that future. And I pray that you'd use that to, to steal us today, to steal us for the present, to steal us for the future. Amen.